What number is this, Chip? Zilch 152, Monkeys 101, Don't Look a Gift Horse in the Mouth, Monkeys News, and Fun. Okay, no, I mean, like, don't get excited, man. It's because I'm sure I know. Zilch. You're listening to Zilch, a Monkeys podcast. Welcome back to Zilch, your podcast full of monkeys. We hope that you are doing well. We are glad that you joined us today. I'm Ken Mills, one of your hosts here today. And today we have another fun episode of Zilch waiting just for your wonderful ears. So here we are. We are all together. If you're staying at home, be safe. If you are out there working and you're an essential worker and you're out there stocking the shelves and delivering the food and you're on the front lines medically or all the delivery people that are helping us get by and even the postal service, we want to thank you all. We want to thank you all for what you're doing. Today on Zilch, we're going to have Monkeys 101 with episode 8 of the Monkeys TV show, Don't Look a Gift Horse in the Mouth. Hosted by Roseanne Welsh and Sarah Clark. Anthony Pomus will be here with a review of the new album, The Mike and Mickey Show. And Bob Thies and Bethany Thies will be here to celebrate the monkeys in song and give us something to giggle about. But first, we have some sad news to talk about. The music world has suffered a tragic loss and it affects our monkeys world. Adam Schlesinger, a musician, producer, and songwriter, highly regarded for his work as a member of Fountains of Wayne and an Emmy-winning songwriter for TV's Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, has died as a result of coronavirus complications. He was 52. Adam passed away on April 1st, Wednesday morning. He is survived by two daughters. Adam Schlesinger is an Emmy Award winner. He's been nominated for Emmys, Oscars, Tonys, Grammys, you name it. This guy has been part of everything in entertainment for a very long time now. Adam was a member of several bands. He was a member of Fountains of Wayne, Tinted Windows, and Ivy. You may know Adam for his work for the film, That Thing You Do. He wrote that song. It was Oscar nominated, and he was also nominated for a Golden Globe at that time for that as well. But for us Monkey fans... We know him from 2016's Good Times. Good Times was the 12th studio album by the Monkees, and it was produced mainly by Adam Schlesinger. And he also wrote some songs with Mickey Dolans and other people. But here's a song that he wrote. It's called Our Own Little World. And in this song, Adam kind of summed up the entire Monkees experience in many ways. I'm going to read some of the lyrics. You, you blew my mind. You turned back time. You changed my tune. I looked in your eyes and saw starry skies, the sun and the moon. He was referencing that the monkeys were coming back and Davy's twinkle in his eyes. He understood the monkeys. He understood that they were dreamers just like me, just like us. And that somehow he was able to take us back to that time when we all dreamed about maybe being in a garage band or maybe hanging out with the monkeys or hanging out with one another. He understood 
what it was about. He understood the vibe. That you're dreamers just like me. We've got no fear of authority. We're in our own little world. And no one knows where we go or what we do. And I don't mind wasting all my time with you. Because you're a dreamer just like me. We really don't need reality. We're in our own little world. Adam Schlesinger understood that the monkeys were about fun. And that's something that a lot of people just didn't ever get. Permission to smile. So thank you, Adam, for all the work that you did on behalf of us and for helping to bring the monkeys back to us in 2016 on CD, album, and digital. Thank you for being part of the story. We dedicate this episode to you. And tribute to Adam Schlesinger, check out Pods and Sods. It's the six-pack with Adam Schlesinger featuring our own Christine Wolf, our own Button Queen, John Lamoureux, and Joy Royland, and Eric Miller. Check it out. Pods and Sods, six-pack, Adam Schlesinger. Hi, this is Mickey Dolans of the Monkees, and you're listening to Zilch. Well, on our last episode of Zilch, we had Andrew Sandoval on to talk about the Mike and Mickey Show Live CD that came out, and it is now all in our hands. Thank you, Andrew Sandoval, for coming on the show. And, you know, it was, it's been a weird month and a half. And folks, we're so glad to have this gift to get us through these times, something to put a smile on our face, right? Today, longtime listener Anthony Poems is going to review the Mike and Mickey show live. So take it away, Anthony. Hi, this is Anthony Pomus, and you're listening to Zilch, Mr. Dubbelin and Mr. Bob Dub. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm a New York-based freelance writer and a decades-long monkeys freak. I would imagine that that's describing some of you as well. Uh, Ken was kind enough to invite me on here to read to you a review I've just written on the new Mike and Mickey Show Live album, Monkeys Release, coming out this coming week. The review I've written is on timesquarechronicles.com, and I have to give a shout-out to P.R. Pasha David Salador of New York City, who was uh, kind enough to uh, welcome me into the Monkey's Tapestry many a year ago when working with Mickey Dolan's on a trivia book. And I'm going to now read the review from Times Square Chronicles. So let me uh, get my Fiorello LaGuardia hat on, and we'll go. The review is called, Hey, We're Gonna Form a Group, and they have. And here's the review. First, silence. Then, slowly, a growing audience roar more than 50 years in the making is heard. Two singers shout out their own individual hello to the crowd, and the listener just knows this is going to be fun. 
Suddenly, the classic Fender Telecaster-driven arpeggio riff that opens the 1966 number one single Last Train to Clarksville is played, and a band every bit as strong and secure as the recording industry's legendary studio backing group, The Wrecking Crew, kicks in. The Monkees are back, and the new concert album, The Mike and Mickey Show Live, released by Rhino Records, proves it beyond all form of mortal measure. Speaking of mortality, the ongoing evolution of this band has in some ways devolved from four members down to two. Both song and dance man Davey Manchester Cowboy Jones and the multi-instrumentalist soul of the original group, Peter Tork, have shuffled off their respective mortal coils. Jones in 2012 at age 66 following a sudden massive heart attack and Tork from a long bout with cancer that claimed him only a few days after turning 77 last year. That now leaves just Mickey Dolans, born to Hollywood parentage as George Michael Dolans back in 1945, and Michael Nesmith, bequeathed the name Robert Michael Nesmith in 1942, a few short years before Mother Betty invented liquid paper, and a few decades before Nesmith invented a new form of pop music consumption called MTV. For these two aging hipster septuagenarians, naysayers might say it's accomplishment enough if they are merely able to finish any of their concerts with their pipes and their reputations intact. The sheer beauty, however, of this new live album, recorded during last year's successful U.S. tour, is just how strongly Messrs. Dolans and Nesmith have emblazoned excellence and even transcendence upon their band's legacy for all time. Produced by longtime Monkees archivist Andrew Sandoval, whose name has been synonymous with all things Rhino practically since its inception in the late 1970s, and featuring a pristine mix by none other than Nesmith's eldest son, Christian Nesmith, who also backup sings and plays guitar in the group, this new release is that definitive top-of-the-line live concert album recording that the Monkees have never truly been able to deliver until now. Prior to this point, the only major label concert release for the pre-Fab Four was 1987's Live 1967, followed in 2001 by the more extensive four-disc box set Summer 1967, the complete U.S. concert recordings. More a fanboy curiosity than a truly enjoyable concert album, the soundboard recordings from those 1967 shows are historically significant because they capture the group basically thrown into a massive concert tour in support of a hit TV show with only a few weeks rehearsal in addition to all-day-long TV episode shoots followed by evening recording sessions, trying their best to sound like the Wrecking Crew band on their records, not then possible, while also doing their best to sing the song's vocals, thanks to the screaming teenage crowds, not then audible. A lot has happened, though, since those primitive-sounding concerts from the 60s. Armed with their own superior musicianship and remarkable shared stage presence, both Dolans and Nesmith emerge in this concert album as exemplars in the art of show and their show of art throughout this remarkable performance.
Backed by a super tight live band, driven by drummer Rich Dart's phenomenal backbeat throughout, as kick-ass rocking on the Nesmith-written Mary Mary, as it is light and playful on the Nesmith song The Door Into Summer, we have here a selection of songs guaranteed to please the first time and hit songs only fans, just as much as the Deep Tracks crowd who have impassioned debates about which of the two versions of She Hangs Out is the superior take. For myself, I think the far funkier version on the Pisces, Aquarius, Capricorn, and Jones limited album is better than early days producer Don Kirshner's initial version, briefly released as a Canadian market-only 45 RPM flip side to A Little Bit Me, A Little Bit You, before Nez and the boys insisted that it be replaced with the Nesmith penned The Girl I Knew Somewhere. Speaking of A Little Bit Me, A Little Bit You, it's one of only two Davy Jones sung songs, the other being, of course, the obligatory Daydream Believer, in this entire set list, both ably covered by Dolans. In addition to time being the best measurer of the Monkees' true value and talent as one of America's best hit-making bands of the 1960s, time has also revealed Mickey Dolans as the singing voice of the Monkees. He's there on lead at the show's start with Last Train to Clarksville, and he's there to sing us into the finale with I'm a Believer. And he still performs all of these songs he has sung in their original keys. Something that further defines him as one of rock and roll's best singers. Nesmith, who only officially returned to the world of live monkey shows again starting back in 2013 after years away, has things both ways on the songs he sings. Some, like You Told Me or You Just May Be The One, are sung in the original key. Others, like Papa Jean's Blues, tucked into the acoustic section of the evening, or Tapioca Tundra, are pitched a little lower to better suit those contours and shadings more evident in the slightly older and, to believe the man from his 2017 autobiography, Infinite Tuesday, wiser tenor of his baritone voice. Talk about duality. magic of the album, though, and of the Mike and Mickey live shows, are those songs that have either never been done before live, for example, St. Matthew or Auntie's Municipal Court, both from their often underrated fifth album, The Birds, the Bees, and the Monkeys from 68, or those songs from the band's newest, and according to some, their best album, aptly titled Good Times, released in 2016 on the 50th anniversary of the band's TV show and debut album. 
Both the psychedelic rock homage of Birth of an Accidental Hipster and the tender lyricism of Mia Magdalena from this 12th Monkey Studio album benefits here as performed from the Dolans and Nesmith Magic. First in a call-and-response fashion, then in the harmonious blend of two long-singing and still-standing brothers. When Papa Nez tells the audience in a sweet moment of the album before the short acoustic set that he's never enjoyed working with anyone as much as Mickey, all true Monkees fans will likely find themselves close to shedding a tear, only to then be led into laughter when Mickey drolly responds to Nez, I never enjoyed working with anyone as much as me too. It's then you realize you are sharing time listening to two friends who also happen to be monkeys. Though nearly all the song's performances here in this concert are virtually note-for-note from the original recordings, including a version of The Door into Summer set to become a hit track during the upcoming summer of 2020, the song that, for this reviewer, actually improves in live performance beyond the original recording is, without question, Nesmith's track, Tapioca Tundra. Slightly slower arrangement of the song on this live album allows for a much better evocation of Nez's words and themes. On this version, you can really hear the song's dreamlike lyrics, and its images come to life a little more readily in the listener's mind. Furthermore, the song's tempo, as originally recorded back in 67, now feels a bit disjointed and uncomfortably hurried by way of comparison. Something slower and softer wins the game, even in rock music. While it's true the album sounds so much better than any previously recorded Monkees live shows, at times perhaps too much better, occasionally sacrificing spontaneity in place of sonic clarity, it also feels like something is missing from this musical Monkees missive. Some essential element from the original blueprint that I believe far too many have lost sight of all these years. For this reviewer, what's missing is the presence of Peter Tork. Great as this recording and the Mike and Mickey concert experience itself is, and will be again as recently canceled dates are being rescheduled to later this year after we have hopefully beaten down the COVID-19 curve, listening to this album of performed live Monkees music feels a little like watching a Marx Brothers movie that doesn't feature the rascally and beatified Harpo in the cast. Make no mistake... 
The Mike and Mickey Show Live is a splendid live concert album, and I think it should forever put to rest the notion that the Monkees were ultimately unable to cut the mustard as a viable music group on their own. Not so. There is a rich collection of 25 performances here, each of which have the makings of a bountiful meal of music. In the end, though, what's missing on the listener's fork is torque. And when you hear this group's performance of Nesmith's raucous 1968 rocker Circle Sky, it captures briefly the spirit of the original band on stage together as they figured out what they were as a group and who they were to each other in that permutation. Torque often told the story of how, in the middle of a 1968 Monkees concert they were performing live in Osaka, Japan, Davy came over with maracas in hand to Peter, thumping away on his bass, and shouted into Peter's ear above the loudness of the music in the crowd, Hey! We're gonna form a group. That small but fervent moment, Peter's winsome dream that the monkeys would evolve from make-believe group on TV into a real-life group, just as had been first achieved on the group's third album headquarters back in 67, has now come around full circle. Or, better yet, full circle sky. Since I have a real feeling that Davy and Peter are looking down from up in the sky at this new record, and the feeling now is that with the Mike and Mickey show live captured and recorded for posterity, that group, sweetly joked about by Peter and Davey back in 68, has finally and irreparably been formed. you get to hear this exquisite concert album, I think you'll feel the same way. This is one for the ages, just as the monkeys have always been. This is Anthony Pomus signing out. Thank you, Anthony, for that fantastic review. It's such a great CD and so glad that everybody's been able to get a hold of it. And there have been new dates, but we're not going to put them out right now because the way things are, who knows if they're going to hold true. But right now there are uh, new dates for the tour, so hopefully that'll all work out and we will let you know. Check out Monkey's Live Almanac for up-to-the-minute news as far as the Monkeys. Great site. Check it out. Get your copy of The Mike and Mickey Show Live and put a smile on your face. COVID-19 is nothing to joke about, but still, one of the ways we get through things is with art, music, humor, laughter, and it seems like every day is bleeding in from one day to the next, and these last two months have seemed like one long week, right? (laughs) And let's open up the hotline and put a smile on our face. Hello. Let's go to the Zilch Hotline. Hello, sir. Welcome to Zilch. And you are? Hi, my name is Bob Thies. Nice to hear from you. Nice to hear from you, too. On Facebook, we saw that you did a bit of a parody of Daydream Believer with a COVID-19 theme. And we're not here to make light of anyone that we've lost or any of the troubles we're going through, but we all need a smile on our face. And the monkeys always brought us a smile to our faces. And I know you're a monkeys fan, right? I am a Monkees fan, yeah. 
Tell me a little bit about your monkey's story. Like how, like how much of a monkey's fan are you? Where did you find them? All that stuff. Sure. Well, uh, I was born in the 70s, but basically raised in the 80s. And in the time of MTV, I believe it was MTV that was playing the reruns of the Monkees television show. And I've probably seen every episode, you know, all told in my life. So that was my introduction to the Monkees. Um, and, and, you know, I've always thought that, that the music they, they did was, was pretty good. Was, you know, and when I say pretty good, I actually, I mean great. I'm being, I'm being, uh, I'm being silly. But, yeah, um, and Daydream Believer happens to be one of my favorite songs of theirs. And I understand your wife is on background vocals on this? Not only is she on background vocals, she also co-wrote the lyrics with me. Ah, so she's to blame as well. Now, it's <laughs> Now, it's funny to think that you, a Monkees fan, are in charge of some of the youth of America. You are a music director at St. Joseph Regional School, right? That's correct. I'm a music teacher. I direct uh, the middle school chorus as well as directing the middle school band and the elementary school band. And then I teach the pre-K through grade three general education music. Mm -hmm. And you did a de facto tribute to Peter Tork without the time kind of not realizing it. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. I direct an adult choir uh, once a week in the evenings. It's part of a, uh, of a larger group called Rock Voices. I happen to, to direct... Uh, the Keene, New Hampshire uh, Choir, and the Brattleboro, Vermont Choir. I live in Brattleboro, Vermont. And um, our director, our executive director, does all the arrangements. And he arranged the song, A Little Bit Me, A Little Bit You, which was written by Neil Diamond, but made famous by the Monkees. So the season that we were rehearsing that song, um, sadly, Peter Tork passed away uh, mid-season for us. So we decided we were going to kind of make that uh, that song a tribute to him uh, since he played such a, uh, an important role in that song's popularity. So it, yeah, it turned into a kind of a de facto tribute to not just the monkeys, but, but to Peter Tork. Excellent. Yeah. Well, let's listen to a little bit of that right now. Sure. This next song, uh, this turns out to be actually a tribute uh, to, this song is by the Monkees, it's called A Little Bit Be, A Little Bit You, and um, the bass player for the Monkees, Peter Tork, unfortunately passed away in February. We were well into rehearsing this song when it happened, and it always seems like every season we get into these songs, and then we learn that, like last season, the captain of Captain Nathaniel passed away, and we were in the middle of learning one of their songs, and we're just like, ah, oh, we get so invested in these songs, and becomes a part of us and then we feel these these losses so greatly in our courses so this uh this song written by neil diamond but made famous by the monkeys will be our little tribute to peter Torrey. thank you
Hi, this is Peter Tork, and you're listening to Zilch, a Shoe Suede Blues podcast. Hi, this is Peter Tork, and you're listening to Zilch, a Peter Tork podcast. Hi, this is Peter Tork, and you're listening to Zilch. It's a monkey's podcast. So there's some love from everybody in New Hampshire towards Peter Tork and the monkeys. And as I mentioned, your your better half, the lovely Bethany thesis on this, she uh, co-wrote and sang back up. So without further ado or further don't, let's take a listen to monkey fans, Bob Thies and Bethany Thies. And here you are. We want to introduce the song. Uh, yeah, it's called Day Drink Believer. It's our parody uh, using the tune Daydream Believer. And it's a song that I think uh, hopefully will bring a smile to pe- people's faces. Uh, but it's also something that's relatable right now. Mm-hmm. I think we're all kind of feeling this song, even if you don't imbibe, right? So, Indeed. This is meant to put a smile on your face, so Bob and Bethany, take it away. If I could sleep through everything While I'm social distancing I'd stop setting alarms so they won't ring But I wake and rub my eyes Make some Zoom calls, then I cry My sanity is hanging by a string Tears from quarantine Time can be so mean I'm a day drink believer during COVID-19 I stare at a screen, new facts from the CDC Keep at least six feet away from me Stuck at home without my friends Happy hour doesn't end How about a Long Island iced tea? Cheers from quarantine Time has no meaning I'm a daydream believer During COVID-19 from quarantine Time has no meaning I'm a daydream believer During COVID-19 Tears from Drink, believer, drink.
There we go. It's always great to have something to put a smile on your face during these trying times. And I know that you and Bethany would want everyone to stay home, be safe, and flatten the curve. Absolutely. You know, like you said at the beginning, we don't want to make light of of the tragedies that people are experiencing. But with these hard times, it's important that we remember, you know, to, to be happy and, and to try to find the, the light in all of this darkness. And that's kind of what we were trying to do when we came up with this, um, this parody. So, and you touched on that at the beginning of the, of the segment, which was nice. I, you know, and, and, and we also wanted people to drink responsibly. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> we will get through this. There is a better world at the end of this. And if we all work together, we can get there. Stay home, stay safe and stay healthy. Absolutely. Well, thank you for dropping by Zilch today, and uh, thank you for bringing a smile to some people's faces, and uh, keep monkeying around. Thank you so much for having me, and it was absolutely a pleasure. Love you, brother. Be good. Thank you. We're going to play an ad right now for something that you should check out, but first I'd like to send a shout-out to our pal Jody Ritson, who has started this very cool YouTube channel, and she's interviewing people like Barry Williams of the Brady Bunch. Marty Ross and so many other people, Henry Diltz and so on and so forth. There's a lot of cool monkeys-themed and monkeys-adjacent interviews that she's been doing. So check out Jody Ritson on her YouTube channel, which she's dubbed Socially Distancing with Jody Ritson. It's very fun, and there's a lot of really cool interviews. Thank you, Jody, for doing this. This is really neat. So check out Jody Ritson's YouTube channel, Socially Distancing with Jody Ritson. We'll be right back after this with Monkeys 101 with Roseanne Welsh and Sarah Clark. Hi, fellow Zilch fans. This is Dr. Roseanne Welch, author of Why the Monkeys Matter, Teenagers, Television, and American Pop Culture, a book about the enduring significance of the monkeys as a groundbreaking television program, one that introduced audiences to new ideas of political ideology and new concepts of class and feminist theory a program that challenged the rules of a new medium and paved the way for future innovation. Why the Monkeys Matter highlights the artistic achievements of the show's writers, actors, directors, and other artists, and celebrates all that the monkeys mean to television, to American popular culture, and to us, the fans. Why the Monkeys Matter is available in print and for Kindle, Apple iBooks, and Nook from your favorite bookseller. Find out more at RoseanneWelch.com. R-O-S-A-N-N-E-W-E-L-C-H dot com. Class! Class! It's Monkeys 101! Here at Zilch, a Monkeys podcast, we're big fans of education. But as Zilch Nation grows... There's also a growing number of fans who don't know their Frodus from their Freebull Energizer, or who've forgotten the departure time for last train to Clarksville. There are even people in this world who can't solve the equation nine times blue. Oh, but have no fear, because doctors Roseanne Welch and Sarah Clark are here to help with their new series, Monkeys 101. Their regular class sessions and symposiums on special topics will explore all things monkeys, from the deeper meanings of the TV show and music we all know and love, to the cultural impact of the monkeys from 1966 all the way to the present. We'll even explore the monkeys' connections to history then and now. 
Stay tuned for a fun, thoughtful romp through the world of the monkeys. And who knows? At the end of the episode, you just might be thinking about the monkeys in a different, deeper way. Welcome back to Monkeys 101. I'm Dr. Sarah Clark. And I'm Dr. Roseanne Welch. Wonderful to have everybody back this week. Um, we are hitting a milestone today. We are doing the eighth episode of the series, Don't Look a Gift Horse in the Mouth. And it is also the final episode on disc one of the Blu-ray box set. Woohoo! See, we've achieved a milestone. We're, You're right. We're making progress. <laughs> the monkeys are saddled with the responsibility of babysitting a real live horse. The filming dates on this episode were May 31st and June 1st through 3rd of 1966. And as I think I mentioned in our last episode, uh, this was the first episode of The Monkees filmed after the sh show's pilot was picked up by NBC. Exactly. And that's going to lead to some interesting concepts about the writing and in general, kind of how they were forming who the characters were. Yes. Original air date was October 31st, Halloween of 1966. Uh, the show got a 16.5 rating and a 30.5 share, which works out to a little over 9 million viewers. Wow, that's really good for back in the day. Yeah. And uh, this episode was written by Dave Evans and directed by Bob Rafelson. And Roseanne, you mentioned you had some stuff you wanted to share about Dave Evans? Oh, Dave is adorable. He is the nicest man, barring Fred Rogers. Dave <laughs> Evans is the nicest man I have ever heard of, much less met. Um, you know, I, uh, his basic rundown is that he um, came from Kansas and he was working in L.A. as a greeting card writer. And he got a job with um, the Bullwinkle crew working on new pilots for them, uh, Jay Ward. And so that was pretty cool. And when Jay Ward saw the pilot for this show, he said, I have just seen the dumbest thing I've ever seen, but I think you'd be great for it. <laughs> Which is some kind of compliment, but I don't know. Um, so there was there was Dave amidst all these other New York writers, as we've discussed, Peter Meyerson, Treva Silmarin, um, Bernie Orenstein. They were all New York guys and girls and very hip to that world. And he was this really sweet kid from Kansas, you know, who with his wife came out here. And he tells a funny story that when Ward Sylvester was interviewing him and he asked him where he was from, he named a really tiny town in Kansas. And when Ward said, what's that near? He knew the option was to name a big city because everyone mm -hmm. would know it. Um, but instead, being a comic, he named an even tinier town that nobody should ever <laughs> have heard of. And Ward said that was the thing that made his humor suitable to the show. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and we'll come as we as we come to the end of this, which thankfully won't be up for a long time. Dave will also co-write Frodo's Caper with Mickey at the very end. Yeah. Uh, and I'll tell stories about that way then. Okay. But the one story I did want to tell about him as an older gentleman was that after the monkeys, he did a couple shows. He didn't find the situation as beautiful as he felt the monkeys was. He loved that job so much that he eventually quit writing and became um, – uh, a conflict resolution guy. And uh -huh. so through his church, he worked with people having issues and whatnot, which I thought was really pretty. And the capper of it is after our terrible LA riots, um, 20 some years ago, there was an offer by the, um, African, the, uh, Methodist church here in town right. for, um, for Caucasian people to come to their church and share together after this event. And so Dave and his wife were part of a Methodist church that happened to be a largely white congregation. Uh, and all the members of their church, a good many of them, went to this African-American church that Sunday to share together. And he found it such an enriching and beautiful experience that he and his wife continued. 
and continue to this day. And they are the last two people from their church to continue to attend weekly services at this other church. Lovely. I just think he is so sweet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've talked about him a bit before. And, and yeah, just sounds like an amazing guy. Right. And we all know about Bob. So whatever you want to say about Bob, you know. Bob's <laughs> Bob. Early directing for him. So I think it's fun to look at the fact that there aren't a lot of fancy shots. He's really just learning how to do it. Very true. I mean, you know, it it is a little hard to look at this and go, okay, three years later, he's doing Easy Rider, you know? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. No, you wouldn't like you wouldn't accept he raised the money and produced so well, like, yes. he could hire himself. But somebody else I don't think would have given him that opportunity off what he shows in this episode. He grows as we go through the show. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, you can you can see him evolve as he because he doesn't direct a lot of episodes. I want to say it's about a half a dozen, but you can kind of see how he evolves through. I mean, you know, he does monkeys in Paris for heaven's sakes. Which is a ball. And that's a really wonderful um, mix of editing and all the things the director's going to need to do, as you said, for Easy Rider. It's a 30 minutes of a French New Wave movie. (laughs) Basically, (laughs) it's true. So it's an interesting team. And the only other thing I could say about Dave is that in this, uh, we notice here, he is given full credit where later dates you'll see Uh, as we said with Peter Atreva, plus Gerald and Dee Caruso, the showrunners. Often when showrunners do some rewrites, they add their names. In this case, they didn't really touch his. And when we talk about production, we'll find that he was invited to the set by Bob Rafelson. And on set, he was able to add more gags and things. So it is largely the bulk of the writing on this episode is truly just Dave. Yeah. Well, moving on, we decided to take a little deeper dive than usual into our guest cast because we have several, a few well-known names and also a few kind of names that are less known, but they're like those character actors. Oh, I've seen that guy, that guy or that lady in 28 different things kind of, kind of people. And it's really an interesting kind of dynamic. And kinging us off, of course, is, uh, Henry Corden as Mr. Babbitt. Woohoo, exactly. Yeah. And- yeah. And and tell everybody who he's famous for being the voice of. Yabba dabba doo. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. That voice still, kids in popular culture still know who Fred Flintstone was, even if they've never seen the show. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. He was the second uh, Fred Flintstone and I think was playing it for many, many years. Did I forget exactly, but into the Oh, 80s. yeah, he goes way up. In, exactly. When they did like the Flintstones and the Jetsons and all these things, he is the go-to voice for that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> That character has been, you know, now we're learning, we have a landlord. And what uh, Gerald Gardner told me was when they wrote the episodes, or or in this case, outlined the episodes for a writer, they always look for cool guest spots for older, decently known character actors, because that's how they thought they would bring an older audience to this show about young kids. Well, yeah, and that actually reminds me a bit of what we were talking about last time with uh, Rosemary and Lon Chaney Jr. having such great spotlight roles, is it kind of convinced the parents to tune into the show the kids wanted to see. Exactly. Very smart on the writer's part. Yeah, absolutely. So next up, we have Mrs. Purdy, who is played by Jesslyn Fax. Um, this is her only monkey's appearance, but she spent most of the 50s and 60s playing, uh, I think IMDb called it little old lady roles. Um, Jack, <laughs> she appeared with Jack Benny, Lucille Ball, and pretty much every other major show of the day from like Gunsmoke to Batman. Yeah, is that hilarious? I know, for Batman of all things. And yeah. I think for Jack Benny, it's cute because she always plays she had a recurring role as the vice president of jack benny's fan club (laughs) (laughs) i love it (laughs) oh god yeah the jack benny show none of our uh, listeners have ever watched it is fun to check out on youtube because he was a supremely excellent comic actor his timing was is something people still talk about today 
Yeah, I haven't, and I really should. I, I will definitely check out on, on YouTube. And the other thing that was interesting and kind of speaks to how these character actors can like have such range. She was, uh, one of kind of a member of Alfred Hitchcock's stable of like go-to character actors. She was in Rear Window, North by Northwest, and like several episodes of his TV series. Exactly. Can you imagine going from that to the monkeys? I know. I don't think you could do the equivalent jump today. I'm not sure. I don't know. Well, we're very bad with character actors about, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago now. It was really a bad choice. Studios, of course, started paying people $10 million, you know, big name actors, $20 million a picture. Mm-hmm. And they had to decide where to cut their fees. And they cut their fees on the kind of money they would pay decently known character actors because they were like, oh, I don't want to pay them what they're used to. So they cut back on a lot of these kinds of people and you stop seeing them in movies. And it hurts because real character actors always give a piece, hello, character. But um, <laughs> when you see faces like John Goodman is one of the few character actors who's gone above that and become a lead. Oh, and yeah. so if you want John Goodman, you get John Goodman. But, you know, we start to move out of people like, I don't know, even Rick Moranis became a lead. But there are levels of character actors who stopped getting work. And I always thought that was awful. But in this period, these stables of character actors are how easy it was for them to write these roles and then to cast these roles. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, similar to this is uh, actually the next guest actor on our list for today's episode. Uh, Mr. Fisher, the farmer played by Jim Bowles. Um, He was very prolific, basically from the 50s through to the early 70s. He he was on the Jackie Gleason show, Little House on the Prairie and pretty much everything in between. This is the kind of work they got. And when they stopped paying the money they should be getting, they didn't get that work anymore. And I think the quality of some of the things we got to watch movies in the 90s showed yeah. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. And the interesting thing with Jim's is, Jim is this is actually the first of two monkeys appearances for him. We will be seeing him again in a um, different awkward situation for Davey uh, when he is the preacher in Hillbilly Honeymoon. That's right. He always did sort of play a country again, which makes sense. He was on Little House on the Prairie. There are some people that just read Midwest America or Middle America. Yeah, and he absolutely does. Next up is Jenkins, played by Chuck Bale, also sometimes credited as Charles Bale. He -hmm. did a lot of like Westerns and military-themed TV series and movies. But in the mid-70s, he decided to step behind the camera. He directed a lot of episodes of Chips and Knight Rider, the new Adam-12, and of course, that classic series, Baywatch Nights. Exactly. Good Lord. Good Lord. What I think is cool about him is... Um, even as a director, he wrote a couple of the films that he directed. And Ooh. because he's been a stuntman, he um, focused on a lot of action kinds of things. And what's cute is he retired uh, and moved to Texas and started to raise horses. So he was always involved in kind of the same things that he put on screen. Yeah, and that's interesting. I mean, we we you know, often think a lot about the episodes that feature horses and Davey inevitably has some sort of stunt or, you know, crazy thing he's doing on the horse because he can. Yep. I bet I bet he was doing his own horseback riding in this episode, too. Oh, I'm sure he was. Yeah. I'm sure he was. Yeah. And in fact, that reminds me, I forgot to say, that, uh, of course, Dave came up with the idea for this episode because he wanted to highlight the fact that Davey could ride a horse. Oh, absolutely. So, uh, what a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then yeah, you do have a stunt guy for you. Know, you can't hurt your leads because they're beautiful. Mm-hmm. And then we have kind of a bookend of two actors, one of whom this was their first TV uh, episode appearance. And uh, the other, it was their, this episode was their very last screen credit. So first off, we've got young Jonathan as Carrie McLean. This episode was actually his TV debut. He was eight years old. 
continued his career through the 60s and early 70s. Bonanza, Green Acres, I Dream a Genie, the Waltons and the Brady Bunch. Uh, and of course, an ABC after school special. So of course, you'd be right in line for that whole year of ABC after whole years of ABC after school specials. Exactly. I, child actors are so interesting because some of them survive and continue in the business until they're older, as in Mickey, of all people. Mm hmm. Uh, but also um, somebody like Bill Mooney from Lost in Space. I mean, he ended up on all kinds of programs in the future. He's never stopped working as an actor. Um, and he knows all those guys when they were young that all sort of started. And some chose to quit, which is great. And some you know, just couldn't find work after they stopped having that baby face. Yeah. So child actors, I think, have always been a fascination. I'm actually watching, of all things, a Brazilian TV show that you can get on Netflix um, called hmm. Samantha. And it's a cute little show about a girl who was famous when she was, you know, eight or nine, sort of like a Disney princess on TV, dancing and singing. And now she's 30 and has two kids and her husband's a former soccer star. And they're both trying to regain that fame. And it's a it's comedy, but it's also a good look at what do we do to children when we treat them like they're special and then stop. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a big question. You know, we always go back and forth. Look at somebody like Michael J. Fox. Mm hmm. I mean, he had every right to become the biggest jerk in town. And instead, just like Dave Evans, Michael is one of the nicest men that you'll ever yeah. meet. <laughs> and then last up is Jerry Colonna as Dr. Mann uh, on the opposite end of the spectrum. This episode was uh, actually Jerry's last screen credit ever. Um, unfortunately, he suffered a stroke a few months after filming this episode and essentially retired from acting. Um, do you want to share a little bit more about Jerry's career? Um, I just think it's really cool that we can see, you know, thankfully, YouTube, if you look him up, you'll notice a lot of what he did. Um, we came back from the stroke, and the first job he got was with his old friend, Bob Hope, who um, brought him along on the tour to Vietnam he was doing um, for the for the troops. And you'll see a lot of clips with him. There's a great piece I think we'll add a link to uh, from 1945, from World War II, uh, when they were doing a tour and talking about their, you know, and they're doing their jokes and stuff. And the jokes, boy, I have to tell you, the jokes to an ear today are pretty lame. <laughs> um, but they're adorable, and you can just see why people were drawn to him. So he's just one of those classic guys that I think because of, um, because of becoming ill um, disappeared off our sort of popular culture map. Um, and that's too sad. I mean, we're going to use Pat Paulson later on, and he's really not as well-known today as he should be. So these old episodes are like time capsules of the people who were so famous at this time period. I know that Mickey would have been particularly fascinated to have a chance to work with these people who would have worked in the era when his parents had been working. Yeah, absolutely. Because for those who aren't familiar with Jerry Colonna's kind of arc of his career, he began in the radio era as basically Bob Hope's sidekick and then yeah. w appeared in a lot of the Hope and Crosby Road movies. Um, if you're a Disney fan, he was the March Hare in Alice in Wonderland. And yes, also, that's so cool. also the narrator of one of my favorite Disney cartoons, Casey at the Bat. Um, and oh, I, hmm? I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. And he's also parodied in about a dozen different Looney Tunes cartoons from like his peak in the 40s and 50s. So yes, and that was why it's so fun to see these people. And then you understand the parodies so much better. Exactly. Yeah. And he actually received a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame for his contributions in radio. Exactly. And he deserved it. You know, that's the same story you could tell about Jim Bacchus over on Gilligan's Island. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He started radio. Guys who do those crazy voices were perfect in radio because, of course, no one cared what you look like. You could do any voice in the world. Um, but on the flip side of that, 
Um, now that Disney Plus has just opened their streaming service. Oh, I know. I don't, I don't know if you read that they actually had to put out an apology since some of their early films have racially insensitive portrayals done by voices from some of these very famous cool guys. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's a whole nother level of, oh, we have to rethink some of this material and how we present it to people today, um, how we put it in context. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and that's very true. And, you know, and all of this stuff from this era, you know, has aged more or less well, sort of depending on lots of things. So, yeah. right. I think we're going to we're going to find that we, we have already talked about this personally, the monkeys did a really good job. And there's only a couple we know we're going to go into the Chinese uh, yeah. <laughs> later, the Italian mobsters, but people do that to my people all the time. So, you know, I guess we're used to being mobsters. Hello, Irishman Martin Scorsese. But oh. um it's they, the monkeys did a really good job of not having too much of that cringeworthy stuff to look back on. Yeah, as a general rule, net net, like I said, monkey chow mein, a little unfortunate. There's there's a few bits here and there in some of the mobster episodes, but in their context, I think they were a net force for good in that department. Yes, I think yeah, I think we definitely find that. Um, yeah. You'll see in the dance segments, we'll see African American kids coming into their pad to dance. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are definite signs that they were moving forward in the world. Um, but yeah, always there's. Oh, wait a minute, that was 1966. Yeah, very true. So, well, moving on, I think we'll take a look at this week in history. Yes. Uh- On November 1st, the NFL awards a franchise to New Orleans. The name Saints, which I did not know this, alludes to November 1st, which is All Saints Day. I had no idea. I thought it was the Catholicism of New Orleans. Exactly. I I didn't know about the November 1 coincidence. That's hilarious. That had to be deliberate, but yes. Yeah, perfect. That's perfect. (laughs) Yep. And then you're going to be happy about this one. Also on November 1st, L.A. Dodgers pitcher Sandy Koufax becomes the first three-time winner of the Cy Young Award. Oh, yay. That's pretty cool. Yep. Unanimous winner for the second straight year. Moving on to November 2nd, the Cuban Adjustment Act comes into force, allowing 123,000 Cubans opportunity to apply for permanent residence in the United States. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And no, November 4th, this is sad news and actually very timely as we're recording this with the floods going on in Venice. November 4th, 1966, there were actually two major floods in Italy. Uh, first, on November 4th, Venice saw the highest flood in its history. Uh, as of today, it still hasn't been topped, with the waters reaching almost two meters above sea level at their peak. Priceless artworks were ruined and thousands of people were trapped in their home, uh, homes. Another Another 5,000 were left homeless in Venice. Oh, my God. Yeah. And on the same day in Florence, flooding of the Arno River in Arno River destroyed countless artworks in the Fuffizi Gallery and killed 113 people. Jeez. Jeez. It's so amazing. When I was in Milan, I got to see the um, Last Supper. And they explained how during the war, to avoid the bombing, they sandbagged the whole thing and they had all kinds of stuff around it, just desperate not to ruin it. And we have a lot of treasures all over the world that we're maybe not going to be able to protect from all the different things that are going to happen in the future. I don't even know. You can't hide everything in a giant, you know, bunker. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know what you mean. And it was eerie reading up on what happened in Venice in 66 and talking about how, like, basically the ground floor of any building was pretty much wiped out in that and sort of comparing that to the footage we've been seeing on the news the last week or so. Definitely. And I got to imagine from, you know, a librarian standpoint, the idea of losing any kinds of treasures. I heard a couple of bookstores in Venice were completely wiped out. Yeah. 
No. I can't even imagine like an entire bookstore full of books useless. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. <sighs> well, moving on. <laughs> on the happier no- things. Yeah. Well, I don't know how much happier this next one is. November 5th, U.S. performs a nuclear test at the Nevada test site. Uh, yeah. On November 6th. Uh, this was interesting because it relates to NBC. Uh, on November 6th, for the first time, their first, I- their entire lineup was televised in color from that day uh, onward. In color, where available. Yes. <laughs> We should link to that little, I'm sure somewhere on YouTube that, that shows the little thing. with the, that, That's so cool. And then also on November 6th, we had Lunar Orbiter 2 launched. Wow. And now my son, who's 21, tells me that when he does tours at his college, he tours kids around campus, kids from like third grade who are you know, learning that college is something they might do. And he mentions um, that we're, uh, the engineers, some of them have gone off to work for JPL on the shuttle, and the kids don't know what the space shuttle is. Oh, wow. And yeah, that's have- that messes with me because I like I I was a child of the 80s. I grew up in like space shuttle peak everything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And we have Endeavor here at our, our uh, museum. Oh, so wow. Kids can see it, but they've never seen it. Mm. Yeah, that's a little scary. Yeah, craziness. Well, I'll tell you a very quick. Uh, mm-hmm. tan- I showed some of my students hidden figures a couple of years ago. Oh, yeah. A piece of good writing. And um, at the end, I said, what's really well written about this movie is that even though we all know that none of the original Mercury astronauts were killed in space, you all were on the edge of your seat waiting to see if John Glenn would make it back. And then two of the students, and so these are college students, so they're in their 20s, you know, late 19s, early 20s. Two of them admitted to me, I actually didn't know none of them died. I didn't know much about the space race at all. Yeah, I was like, oh, my gosh, what are they teaching you in high school these days? (laughs) No, I mean, maybe it was just because my dad was an Air Force brat and he was kind of a NASA nerd. So we really knew a lot, even like from the Apollo era, which was before our time, we knew a lot of the, uh, you know, a lot of the ins and outs and all that stuff. So, yeah, yeah. So, uh, turning our eyes or rather ears to the billboard charts. Uh, Number five this week is Dandy by Herman's Hermits. Dandy. Where you gonna go now? Who you gonna run to? All your little life, you're chasing all the girls. They can't resist your smile. Uh-huh. They long for Dandy. And who, of course, now travel so much with Mickey on the various tours. Absolutely. And this was this song's first appearance in the top five and also its chart peak. Um, number four, dropping down from uh, number three the previous week, is Reach Out, I'll Be There by the Four Tops. Which uh, swapped places with the four tops is the poor side of town by Johnny Rivers. How can you tell me how much you missed me when the last time I saw you, you wouldn't even kiss me? That rich guy you've been seeing. 
must have put you down So welcome back, baby To the post side of town Ooh, Wow, always amazing which performers from essentially a previous era are still in the Billboard charts while the Beatles and all the sort of new folks are coming up. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and it's it's really interesting. Like I said, I there's like this this range of songs in the Billboard charts in in these you know era, this mid '60s era that I'm not sure you would see as much of not just now but in a lot of other time periods. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's this real kind of inflection point. Yeah. But number two, we've got uh, 96 Tears by Question Mark and the Mysterians. They dropped down one spot from their previous number one. You will notice, faithful listeners, that uh, I haven't listed another name because at number one in their debut at the top of the Billboard Hot 100, a position they would grow increasingly at home in over the next year or so, we have the Monkees with Last Train to Clarksville. And I don't know if I'm ever coming. Rah, 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 rah. So yes. fun, so fun. <laughs> Too funny. And of course, that's in the new ad for the Mike and Mickey show that they just announced the new tour. Of course, as, as we're recording yeah. this, so it'll be late a month from now. But um, what the, 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 la- the log line is from last, claim to, from last train to Clarksville to me and Magdalena. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's really kind of a cool, wow. That's, yeah, when you think yeah. about it for a minute. Mm-hmm. Very true, very true. Any other things we wanted to pre-discuss? Oh, you know, one of the nice bits of Dave's writing is the whole run on, you're the monkey. No, monkey, monkey who sings. What's the monkey who yeah. sings, right? And then the horse. No, you're a horse and you're right, because you have a horse in your house. And he's really good at playing with words, which is mm-hmm. a really, again, a timeless kind of comedy that doesn't rely on insulting anyone who in later years will find it a different level of comedy. So. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, some of it is a little, you know, sounds a little old fashioned to the ear, but mostly it ages really well. Hello, Dr. Man. Uh, hi, I'm one of the monkeys and I have a sick horse. A monkey bothered by horses? I didn't even know monkeys could talk. <laughs> Come right over. <laughs> Dr. Man? Dr. Man? Dr. Man? Yes? Hi, I'm the fellow that called before. Where's the monkey? Oh, I'm the monkey. You're the monkey? <laughs> you don't need a vet, young man. You need a psychiatrist. <laughs> no, wait a minute. You don't, you don't understand. I'm not a real monkey. I'm the kind of monkey that sings. Oh, no wonder your horse. Probably your throat muscles are tired. <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm not a horse at all. I have a horse. Oh, does he sing too? <laughs> uh, uh, no, sir. He's just, you know, he's a regular animal. Except that he's very sick. Sick? I could probably help him. I'm a veterinarian. Excuse me. So classics. So I think that's fair. Absolutely. Um, And of course, they use the great um, visual jokes of um, the horse that they're pulling is going to be used again in Success Story. 
Oh, that's right. They do. Well, again, because that was recorded later, but previously, because we've already seen that episode, it's all timey-wimey. Exactly. Wibbly-wobbly, timely-wimey. Exactly. Yep. It's very much so. But also, you'll notice a couple shots in this episode are used in the credits because it was one of the few episodes they had to pull shots from when they created the credits. Because remember, this was the first episode filmed after the pilot. <laughs> True. And actually, Peter Meyerson, um, I remembered him telling me this was the first filmed, but of course, we know the first aired was Royal Flush. And when I asked Meyerson why, he said, because mine solidified the concept of the show better. Because in this one, Davy, does, Davy doesn't fall in love with anyone. Davy doesn't fall in love, and we don't really see them playing their instruments. I mean, we get a little bit of Papa Jean's moves at the end of the episode, but... Which I think is there specifically to remind the audience these guys play music, because that happened in the pilot, and then it doesn't happen in this episode. So, Because they just tagged that on, so that has to be what they were trying to keep alive. Yeah, absolutely. So it's really interesting. Yep. And there was a one anecdote that I found while I was prepping that I thought would be uh, fun to share. Uh, apparently on the first day of shooting, which as 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 we just discussed, would have been essentially the first day of shooting for the entire series. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bob Rafelson took the Monkees TV cast and crew by truck and van to Malibu Canyon, where uh, they were going to, be going to be shooting the farm scenes. Right. When they arrived at the farm, Rafelson discovered the gate was locked and there was no farmer. Uh, he suggested knocking over the gate and worrying about it later to a Screen Gems official who refused to do so without an okay from Screen Gems. So Rafelson sent him to search for the farmer and then in his absence commandeered the first truck which he used which he then used to ram the gate and the crew marched in (laughs) you gotta do what you gotta do to make your day if you're directing something (laughs) and hey worst case scenario is good buddy is bert schneider so (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly and bert schneider's dad is Uh also a useful connection in this story exactly i'm more to the point bert schneider's dad (laughs) exactly Um, And, you know, it's interesting when you say a farmer in Malibu, I think that around the country, when people hear Malibu, they think super rich people living on the coast. Right. Because that's who you generally see in the news. And sadly, when there's a fire or a flood. But in fact, yeah, Malibu is an interesting city um, that uh, only separated from L.A. a few years ago and to become its own city. It was really part of L.A. for all that time. And it's a really interesting hodgepodge of people living up in little canyons in tiny shacks they built when they were hippies and they were hiding from the city and they managed to maintain ownership of that land over the years. And then down the street, giant multi-million dollar mansions that view the ocean. So it's Mm -hmm. a real, there's a lot of actual ruralness to Malibu that isn't what people think. Huh. Interesting. We'll have to go there when you're in town. Hey, sounds great to me. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, well, let's go ahead and get started on the episode. Yeah, up there. Would you watch my horse for me? Sure, I'd be glad to. You sure you won't let anything happen to him? <laughs> sure, I'm sure. Thanks, sister. Hey, hey, wait. Hey, when you coming back? Hey, wait. Hey, kid. As we open, David clad in the closest thing one could get to a Speedo on network TV in 1966 Mm -hmm. is attempting various tumbling moves. (laughs) 
For what reason? We don't know. Yeah, just for reasons. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) for the demographic is the reason, but glossing over that. um, A a young boy who we soon learn is named Jonathan arrives and asks Davy to watch his pet black stallion, Jeremy. Uh, Davy agrees, but the boy suddenly runs away, leaving Davy no choice but to take the horse home. Um, Meanwhile, back at the pad, Peter is serving Mickey and Mike his famous cream of root beer soup. (laughs) <laughs> Which is a reminder that he's the dumb one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but and then when Mickey tries some of it, uh, Mickey decides to just randomly break out into a werewolf routine, uh, which which. Which is the reminder that he's the crazy funny one. Exactly, exactly. And that attracts the landlord, Mr. Babbitt, uh, who hates animals and uh, basically is suspicious they are keeping a dog and threatens them of eviction if they ever defy his, defy his rules against pets. Uh, and as soon as he leaves, cue Davy walking through the back door with Jeremy, our horse. <laughs> Imagine they had to have a horse wrangler on set for this. One would think, and also that 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 back entrance, I think, is up those stairs from the beach. How on earth? Never mind. <laughs> never, exactly. Never mind. The perfect example of the fact that that exterior is, of course, not part of the interior. Yeah, that that exterior, exterior, like barely matches the vaguest notion of that house. But anyway. <laughs> Yes. And yet in the in the um, auditions online, of course, they were actually in that place. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can sort of see the similarity. But yeah, they they totally, you know, they expanded some things. And of course, you know, as as the series progresses, it gets more and more divorced from reality in several senses. So yeah, yeah. we never see the exterior really often again, because no, they, they put it in a lot in establishing shots like kind of that first half of the first season. But even then it starts fading away. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. So after the credits, Mike explains to Davy about Mr. Babbitt. And of course, Mickey, in not one of his brightest moods, decides to go back into the werewolf routine. <laughs> um, and Mr. Babbitt is banging on the door. They can't get the horse to move. But Mike, as always, the fearless leader in these early episodes, uh, sends Peter and Davy to hide before letting Mr. Babbitt again and claims it's uh, Peter and Davy in a horse's costume for a masquerade party. <laughs> Like, like people went to masquerade, like this is a, a France and we're going to the Versailles to go to a masquerade party. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but in any case, after Babbitt leaves, they try to tra- drag the horse outside again. He still refuses to budge. Um, Peter tries to coax the stallion to move with a ditch- dish of his soup and the horse, of course, promptly collapses. <laughs> <laughs> Though but Danny no says it's for fatigue. Of this. <laughs> Sorry. That was good. But no horses were harmed during the filming of this episode. I hope not. <laughs> Mike then phones Dr. Mann, a confused, scatterbrained veterinarian, and arrives at his office asking for his help about the sick horse, and the doctor agrees to help. It's worth noting that he's a veterinarian, but his name is Dr. Dr. Mann. Mann. Exactly. Yes. Meanwhile, back at the pad, the confused vet mistakenly examines Peter and Davy, who are in a horse's costume, of course, and upon hearing their voices, concludes that the horse has delusions of singing and a split personality. (laughs) Then everyone hears knocking. Uh, Fearing it was the landlord again, uh, Mike puts the confused doc in the closet, stating a sick owl is in there. And again, the doc agrees to help. (laughs) 
<laughs> Mike answers the door, and it turns out to be Mrs. Purdy, their neighbor, who offers the boys cake. But then uh, the real horse, Jeremy, enters the room and starts eating it, which, of course, causes Mrs. Purdy to faint. Because apparently and, women back in the day fainted all the time. Well, yeah. And and at this point, we're getting into like one of those high jinx, everything goes nuts moments, kind of like success story. Yep. Because yep, <laughs> exactly. Mickey throws a smoke bomb down from the balcony, fills the entire beach house in a fog. Um, they try to revive Mrs. Purdy, who keeps waking up and passing out. Mike opens the door to get some air, only to see Mr. Babbitt at the doorway. <laughs> <laughs> slams the door in his face tells peter to put the, the horse's mask back on uh when he opens the door again for babbitt peter's with the ho- peter with the horse's mask speaks to him and mr babbitt faints dead away too thinking it's a real horse <laughs> cut to commercial god exactly oh my goodness <laughs> hijinks ensue often even without me their their romps without the music underneath them yet Oh, yeah. Yeah. This this was a, uh, another a- excellent kind of early example of it and just kind of them running around doing crazy stuff. So, yeah. OK, the next morning on the beach, Davy is riding Jeremy and he encounters Jonathan again, um, finds out what's going on. Uh, and Jonathan tells him that his father, Mr. Fisher, is determined to sell the fo- horse because they can't afford it. Come here. Come over here. Well, I'm glad to see you. Now you can take your horse back. But I can't take him back. Jeremy's your horse now. My horse? I don't know what to do with him. Just ride him like you've been doing. Why can't you keep him? Pa won't let me. Says Jeremy costs too much. Says he's going to sell him. I bet if you talk to my pa, he'd listen. Why should he listen to a stranger? I don't know. You talk good. (laughs) Jonathan then asks Davy to talk his father into keeping the stallion, so the monkeys decide to offer to pay for the horse by working it off as farmhands for a week in order to make $100, which is apparently what the horse cost. Four guys working eight hours a day for five days are going to make $100. Yeah, when you think about it. (laughs) Think about that. You know, of course, back in the day, remember in, um, my God, I'm forgetting the name of the song, the banker who made, took home $67 a week. Mr. Webster? Thank you, thinking? Mr. Webster. Yeah. Think about it. Mr. Webster is getting 67 bucks a week mm-hmm. for his bank work. And so this is, this is manual labor. This isn't high class working in a bank. Yep. So the next morning, Mr. Fisher, banging the triangle, wakes the foursome who are sleeping in the barn. Uh, And of course, they having absolutely no experience as farmhands, everything goes poorly. They bury Peter under the hay. They end just demonstrating how to call hogs. They uh, Mickey emits a call so loud that Mr. Babbitt can hear it from their apartment (laughs) (laughs) and attracts chickens by mistake. Uh, Then the guys attempt to milk a cow and essentially just romp around to Papa Jean's blues. <laughs> a good use of that song, is any. Yes, but we also, at least we get the scene of Mike uh, in his matador outfit, which, of course, we also see in the opening credits of the show. Exactly. Yeah. And ends with Mr. Fisher being drenched with a pail of milk and firing them. <laughs> so, as the foursome are preparing to leave, uh, Jenkins, Mr. Fisher's neighbor, arrives and starts belittling Jeremy to Jonathan. But David, David depends... But Davy defends the stallion. That's hard to say. And, Jen- right. 
and Jenkins bets him $100 that his horse Charlemagne can outrun Jeremy. Um, gee, I wonder how this is going to turn out. <laughs> <laughs> the monkeys put up their electric guitar against his $100 in one of, turns out, a series of betting their musical instruments against people. Um, and Davey, now dressed in his jockey gear, being a former jockey himself, both in TV and uh, you know in real life, races against Jenkins' horse and rides the Black Stallion to victory to the tune of All the King's Horses. He One had- of the few songs that is exactly perfect for the rump. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, they replace it in reruns, which kind of annoys me. But hey, uh, yeah, we'll get there in a minute. Uh, Davy gives the $100 to Mr. Fisher so that Jonathan can keep his pet. And the grateful Mr. Fisher apologizes for pegging them wrong and invites them to visit some more as long as they don't help with any more chores. (laughs) Then at the capper of the episode, they're on the beach again, and another boy approaches Davy, asking him to look after his pet, a camel. Uh, mm-hmm. But this time, Mickey, my computer, step in, step in just in time to prevent this. They all run away on foot and by motorbike and finish their rendition of Papa Jean's Blues. <laughs> That's a pretty, you know, basic sitcom, a, a comedy based on a situation that is funny. I mean, that's the perfect definition of a sitcom. Yeah, it it, it is is it is a very kind of staple sitcom. It's it's also one of those things where you could see that. I mean, it's a monkeys episode, but you could see that script with a few variations being in maybe another you know an episode of a different kind of sitcom. So you know, oh, of course, of course, yeah, yeah. Um, any kind of overall thoughts? Um, no, you know, because it's really just truly a sitcom. Mm-hmm. It's not started with any kind of great message. I mean, success story does, in fact, have a message about friends being more important than fame. Yeah. Um, and a lot of writers work from theme first. And I think Dave admitted he was the kind of guy who just looked for funny things to do. Um, so they're really, you know, I mean, outside of the fact that it's nice to be a good friend or um, I will quote something that others will laugh at, but friendship is magic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to laugh. I am Twilight Sparkle. <laughs> there you go. See? So, I mean, that's really all they're doing with this. And that's fine. It, do- it does a job of um, introducing us to the characters and and making us think they're nice men if we're afraid of men with long hair, which still amazes all of us to say that. But they were yeah. afraid of men with long hair. So that's- Yeah, especially by the standards of 2019. They don't even have long hair, but I digress. <laughs> I, no, but it's true. My students, when I show that, can't. They're like, "Boy, that's nothing." Yeah, exactly. You know, and and we were talking a little bit about characterization. Um, Mike and Davies' characters seem pretty close to their final form, especially Mike. I mean, he's he's basically the dad with a few you know, changes here and there. He's the dad slash leader pretty much through the run of the show. Yeah, it's funny because the only time he's not is um, I've got a little song here when he seems so much more naive and and to be truly a young man as yeah. opposed to the leader. Very interesting that they I – mean, interesting yeah. choice. I'm looking forward to get to that episode because, yes, he still reads as the leader of the group, but then you're, you know, in this wider world, he's still kind of this naive young kid. man, barely yeah. l- barely more than a kid. Yeah. Yeah, I think and, that's so interesting. And I liked that scenario of, you know, putting him kind of on the back foot for a change. But we'll get to that when we get to that. So. We get to that, exactly. But no, you're right. That's, this is really, these guys stay the same pretty much throughout. Yeah. And, and you know, it was interesting because we talked about this a little bit. 
yes, Peter's a bit more naive than he is goofy, and Mickey's a bit more goofy than he is naive, but they still, those two characterizations still feel a little squishy to me in this episode. Mm-hmm. Oh, they're finding, they're finding themselves, definitely. And um, it could be said Dave Evans was much more interested in focusing on Davey because of the horseback riding, and they right. became friends um, before he and Mickey got to know each other, blah, blah, mm. throw paper. So um, he just probably felt more tuned into what they were doing. And remember, in the beginning... In terms of the casting and the setup, this was a show that they already knew was going to star Davy Jones. So there was a lot more focus on yeah. him um, than the others. Yeah, and then and then I think they per, it seems like they landed on Mike pretty early too because he was already signed to Colpix as a recording sure. artist. So sure. you know sure. he still had to audition. I don't think he was quite as much a shoe in as Davy was, but. Yeah, he was yeah. an entity. Yes, he was a known entity, definitely. Exactly, and and it's just um, there's this whole run of episodes they record, like from the beginning of June to the beginning of uh, to like about the middle of December. There's like a break for Thanksgiving, but they pretty much are filming episodes for this whole six month stretch. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the first of like three clumps of episodes they filmed during the series, and it's interesting, kind of watching the episodes that roll through and how the characterization sort of gets more dialed in and more solid during that six months stretch because like by the end when you're getting to things like monkey chow main which was recorded toward the end of that time mickey is mickey and peter is peter and there's you know you can tell totally the difference between the two of them yeah and i would say that that's really true any series in its first season if you really go look back it'd be fun to go back and look at friends again and really see what solidifies there and um, any show, they're finding their footing. They're learning, and they're also learning what the audience wants. And in this case, nowadays they know that immediately because people are on Twitter in five seconds. But right. in this era, they had to wait till fan mail came in to tell them which of the boys they liked best, mm-hmm. they wanted to see more of. All of that was was information they were waiting to hear. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, and you can even see that. Like, uh, go watch the pilot episode of The Big Bang Theory sometime. Oh yeah! Oh my yeah. gosh! Exactly! Exactly! So. Yeah. Um, and uh, another kind of I don't normally get into like continuity glo- goose and bloopers, but this one kind of uh, hopped out at me um, when the monkeys go to the farm to talk to Jonathan's farm uh, father about, you know, raising the money to save the horse. We right. learned that it's enough of a drive into the country that they like slept over in the barn. Right. But Jonathan had ridden the horse all the way to the beach to give him away next to their house and next the horse the ride would take longer than a car ride exactly. exactly and how the heck did jonathan get home after he gave away the horse <laughs> <laughs> well now because I, I will tell you this there's no good bus service from malibu back to where the boys <laughs> okay that was my next question when you said that, that that some of the farms in malibu were relatively close <laughs> yeah wait that's confusing because the Mal- the farm is in malibu they yeah. say yeah. And so the boy lived in Malibu, so I didn't tell you, oh, no, this is all messed up. Yeah. I just wanted the guys to sleep on hay bales because it looked funny and the costumes were funny. Well, yeah. <laughs> it was also wanted- the only time they had Davy in a shirt the entire episode. <laughs> exactly. And they wanted the joke of waking them up and Mickey saying, but it's still Tuesday night or whatever. You know, it's yeah. not. It's morning, it's night. So that's funny. There's no other way they could have done that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's good. That's continuity, probably. There used to be continuity. Um, people in the beginning, early days of movies. And then there still are actually um, people who monitor that, but not on a show like this. They well, no, care. no. <laughs> <laughs> Just one of those things that popped up. Um, yeah. And then as far as music, this is actually the first episode so far that didn't debut a new song. Um, the two songs this episode were All the King's Horses, which we discussed in episode five, The Spy Who Came In from the Cool, and Papa Jean's Blues, which we just discussed in episode seven, Monkeys in a Ghost Town. 
Um, All the King's Horses was replaced in Saturday morning's reruns with I Never Thought It Peculiar. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, that was exactly my notes. Okay, I guess. (laughs) Someone just slamming it in there because they had to put in new. So they weren't caring when they were stripping the stuff for syndication. Nobody cared. I yeah. mean, yeah, that's yeah. just so sad. There was no one there thinking theme, thinking about the story. They were just slamming a new song because we want to sell this. Exactly. And I mean, we're talking about the Saturday morning reruns started like, you know, less than three years after this thing aired. And it's just when you think about that, it's like how fast it went up and how fast it came back down, at least in that initial run. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, but, yeah, of course, there are people, you know, who will tell you that they're the 70s fans, not 60s fans, you know, and before there oh, were yeah. 80s fans. So it all depends on what age you were when you stumbled on them and where they were airing when you stumbled. Exactly. I know a lot of people who are fans with some of the, the 70s Saturday morning music inserts, and and some of them work better than others. And, you know, we've, we've already heard my rant about how Shades of Grey is the one syndication <laughs> song that's better than the original and, and success story. But that is true. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, I think we've pretty much discussed what there is to discuss about Don't Look a Gift Horse in the Mouth. Um, anything else you want to add? No, I think you're right in that it was one of the more simplistic episodes. And so we have said what we can say. There's not yes. tons to analyze. We just can enjoy the performances. I think you're right. You were right to focus on the actors because that's that's what made this show, this episode worth looking back at. Yeah, absolutely. And then our next episode will be covering The Chaperone, in which uh, Davey finds himself a girl he likes, but unfortunately to throw a party, he's got to have a chaperone. <laughs> and think about what that says about back in the day, considering there were girls in colleges who were in dorms that required signing in and signing out before they went on a date with a young man. And literally chaperones were still a thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the dad in this, this we'll get to it, is yeah. kind of portrayed as a little bit more kind of conservative and military and old school mm-hmm. than was typical even by 66. But it was still like within the range of normal behavior. Exactly. Oh, totally. So, totally. It works. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, it'll be fun. Absolutely. Looking forward to that one. So uh, thank you all for listening to Monkeys 101, and we'll catch you again soon. Have a good week. Bye. Dr. Roseanne Welch is a Mickey girl and the author of Why the Monkeys Matter, Teenagers, Television, and American Pop Culture. After a career of writing for television shows like Touched by an Angel, Picket Fences, and Beverly Hills 90210, Roseanne shifted gears and went into education. She now writes on film and television studies and teaches in the screenwriting program at Stevens College. Dr. Sarah Clark is an April Conquest and proud of it. When not podcasting here at Zilch, a Monkey's podcast, or writing at her blog, Fandom Lenses, her not-terribly-secret identity, she can be found leading a university library in the Philadelphia area. Sarah is convinced that her utter inability to understand Head when she was 11 sparked the intellectual curiosity that led her into academia. If only she'd known the guys themselves didn't understand Head either. Thank you, Roseanne Welsh and Sarah Clark. Love that segment. It's always great to go in-depth, and I love when they play the top five of what was going on at the time that this episode came out back in the 60s and 
It's just very cool. If you would like to check out other stuff, we here at Zilch, we have some other shows you might want to check out. If you're a KISS fan, we do a show called The Podkist. If you're a Cheap Trick fan, we do a show called Cheap Talk. And we also have another show called Pop with Ken Mills that has everything from movies, TV, music. And we even have a game show that's all about music you might want to check out all over on Pop with Ken Mills. Check us out over at Facebook. And of course, Tim Powers has Deep Dish Radio, which you need to check out because there's some really cool interviews over there as well. We'd like to thank everybody here on staff, and, and I'd like to thank Christine Wolf, who is a bit of a producer here. She keeps me organized and keeps Zilch organized, so thank you very much. And thank you for listening and being with us. We will get through this. Good times are still ahead, and looking forward to seeing Mike and Mickey on the road, and watch a Monkey's TV episode. Put a smile on your face. We'll see you all on the next episode of Zilch. Sending love to everyone. And remember, we were born to love one another. Take some time and monkey around. See ya. And that's our show. Zilch is an online nonprofit monkeys audio fanzine made by fans for fans. Any samples of music or interviews heard remain property of their owners. We are not related to the monkeys or any of their members past or present. We are not affiliated with Rhino or Ray Burke. If you hear anything you like from the band, go on Amazon or iTunes and buy it. If you enjoyed the show, like us on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm your announcer, Chelsea Epstein, saying always take some time to monkey around.